When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today, on Somewhere in the Skies, Dr. Adam Kehoe. So from what I can see, as I look outside of the U.S. context and just the Anglophone world and take kind of a wider perspective, the USO and the, the ocean and kind of naval context is actually um, crucial. It's, it's incredibly important. I, I do think that the, uh, a fair amount of research attention is going to go in that direction. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. What's up, guys? Before we get to this week's interview with Dr. Adam Kehoe, I have to take a moment to send my thanks out to our new Patreon subscribers for their support. So, to Matthew T., Cliff B., Louis N. O., Michael P. G., Barry N., Jason M., Robert H., Herman A., Ryan S., Dahlia M., Chris J., Mikhail S., Tom, Bradley W. P., Jonathan M., Sean, Eric A., John M, Jen FK, Mary MC, Jen M, Cy M, Carly, Alex C, Jude T, Mike MG, Scott H, Brian K, Caspian, Joe W, and Alan F. Thank you so much to all of you, past and present, for helping to support the show on Patreon. I truly couldn't continue doing the show right now without your help, so please know that you are literally keeping the show alive. If you would like to become a Patreon subscriber, we have tons of rewards for you in return. So to join or to learn more, visit patreon.com slash skies. And now, here's our conversation with Dr. Adam Kehoe. Adam, thank you so much for joining me today on Somewhere in the Skies. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah. So, I mean, I've come across your work in the past few months through some of my colleagues, Alejandro Rojas and Zach over at the Project Human podcast, which, man, I listened to that entire conversation on a road trip and I was like turning down corners I didn't need to go down just to make the drive longer because <laughs> I couldn't stop listening, dude. And that's what I knew I had to have you on my show. Oh, fantastic. We we did our job then. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It was a, a really good way to start off his uh, his new podcast over there for Project Human. So, uh, Zach, thank you for bringing Adam my way. But we're going to really dive in to this tonight, man, because um, I've been just reading and going through your blog like crazy, and that is Strategic Doubt. And um, before we kind of get to some of the specific things you have over there, Origin story. I, I'm sure you're mm-hmm. you're used to this question by now, but um, we all get it. But uh, yeah, before we get into UFOs, uh, a topic that you cover from the periphery within y- the context of your blog, um, tell us a little about yourself, if you don't mind, for my listeners and uh, and people who may not be too familiar with you. Um, a brief rundown, maybe who you are, what your doctorate's in, and uh, yeah, what made you want to start the blog, Strategic Doubt. Yeah, absolutely. So my educational background um, was initially actually in history. And initially, I planned to go to law school. And then the uh, the Great Recession changed all that uh, It was not a not a great time to go into the legal profession. But it turns out, you know, I had this side interest in in technology. And so after I graduated, I was looking around and I needed a job in a, a tough market. And um, I ended up getting a, a tech job in the defense world for a little while. Uh, and that was fascinating. And I'd, I'd already been interested in, you know, a lot of these kinds of issues of intelligence and the military and, and strategy just from my study of history. But then, you know, getting to see a little bit of that up close uh, was really an entirely different experience. 
So after doing that for a little while, I decided I wanted to try to find a way where I could fuse my different interests. So I ended up going into a field called information science, which is a multidisciplinary field. It's kind of a combination of computer science, statistics, sociology, uh, library science, um, all of these different things kind of together. So that's ultimately what I got my PhD in. Um, and my little corner of information science was in what's called biomedical information retrieval. So essentially, we build like the kind of Google-like tools for um, biologists and, and bench scientists. Uh, so I did that for for some time. Uh, and, you know, through that process, I, I found that I really loved engineering. I really loved building systems. Uh, so what I ended up doing was starting a, a business, a consulting business, which I'm, you know, still doing today. Um, and then, you know, now I've, I've gotten more involved in, in writing about the UFO topic. Right. And that, you know, that, that's, of course, why what struck me and uh, brought me to your work. So I got to ask, how did it sort of take that pivot? Did you have mm -hmm. an interest in the UFO topic before this? Have you had a UFO sighting? Yeah. What got you into this topic? Yeah, I've never had a UFO sighting or experience uh, myself personally. And, um, you know, I joke that like it's it's hard to escape a childhood in the 80s without being at least a little interested in, in UFOs, <laughs> just with the, the media environment that uh, that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, in 2017, uh, when when Lou Elizondo came out and when um, To the Stars Academy um, uh, was kind of coming into the fore and we had The New York Times reporting um, the topic became more interesting to me then because it, it went from being, um, fascinating stories, uh, and, and this kind of rich, um, legacy of lore into a real life kind of, um, uh, government and policy question, uh, in a way that I hadn't seen, you know, treated before. And so that's really what got my interest. But, you know, at the time I was still finishing up research and starting my business and had a whole bunch of other things going on in life. So, I paid attention to it, but it was really this year when I had a time to go back and really kind of absorb uh, everything. And then at that point, um, I kind of came to the recognition that no matter how I thought about the problem, there was an issue kind of at the end of the decision tree. So my thinking was, well, okay, if all of these sightings turn out to be really nothing at all, if they're just um, a confused pilot or a glitching radar, well, then we've got a defense preparedness problem because, you know, when you hear some of this pilot testimony, it's not just like, oh, they, they saw something interesting, but it's this awe-inspiring experience they had. So if that's that's the result of a mistake, then then that's something to be concerned about. And that's kind of like the most prosaic, boring explanation you can give to the phenomenon. <laughs> um, you know, and if you go to the other end of there's something, you know, either genuinely strange where we really don't understand what it is. So that's a profound uh, question scientifically and, and also in terms of national defense. And hey, if it's a, you know, a Russian or a Chinese program of some kind, then that's also, you know, deeply concerning, uh, because it would suggest that they've achieved some sort of qualitative advantage. So, you know, no matter what uh, avenue you go down, you, you, you see something that, that really needs to be investigated. So that, that's what really got me passionate about it to the point where I started writing about it. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with you, man. I mean, I think this topic, uh, UFOs, UAPs, whatever you want to call them, it really goes beyond everything. You can look at it through every lens, whether, you know, psychological, uh, folkloric, historic, religion, and like you said, even up to national security and policy. I mean, it's incredible how you can sort of connect this topic or this issue to anything. And um, I think that's what really drew me to your work, because you're looking at this from a strategic <laughs> defense <laughs> angle and also, um, you know, a historical standpoint. Um, but before we kind of dive into some of those more uh, defense-oriented questions for you, I'd love to get kind of the human side of you. You mentioned, you know, other things in life. And I found this really powerful piece you wrote on your blog called Magnetar, um, which really gave us kind of an inside look at you, Adam, you know, aside from you as the writer. So would you mind maybe giving us a little uh, rundown about what Magnetar was about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the closing of uh, period of my PhD, sort of towards the end, long story short, I, I, I started to get sick, um, really, really sick. And I I'd had had some health issues before that. But um, all of a sudden, it, it accelerated to this point where, you know, I, I was having difficulty walking, staying awake. Um, something was clearly like drastically wrong. And, and so um, I went to see, you know, a physician on campus at the time, I was still a PhD student. 
And, you know, he told me based on my symptoms, you know, I've seen patients younger than you with cancer. Like you, you need to urgently um, go to the hospital and, and have a bunch of diagnostic tests done, which, you know, obviously it's, it's a shock to hear that. Uh, but then the next part of it in our, you know, our American healthcare system was, uh, they actually sent me to the financial counselor and they said, you know, the insurance isn't really going to cover, you know, what, what needs to happen next. So, you know, you kind of need to prepare yourself. And then that's exactly what happened. So I went to the hospital and, you know, uh, as part of that, you know, the first question was, you know, how much, how much can you pay today? Right. So I, I went through, mm-hmm. um, I went through an ordeal there where, um, you know, I had, uh, a lot of expenses, uh, rack up as part of that process. And then worst of all, I, w- I went through a bunch of testing and then it was inconclusive. Um, they found that I didn't have cancer. You know, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't dying, although at the time it sure sure felt that way. But what it turned out to be, uh, I learned later um, when I started to get sick again, I, I ended up paying for my own genetic testing. And then using that, you know, biomedical informatics background, I, I did my own research. Um, I learned um, that um, I, I learned that I have, um, you know, a somewhat uncommon autoimmune disease um, with another, you know, genetic risk factor that kind of made it a little bit more, uh, dramatic than it usually is. Um, and so I went back to the hospital and had kind of my folder of research with me. And then we very quickly figured out what it was. And, um, you know, I eventually kind of got back on, on course in terms of, um, therapy and treatment, uh, for the condition. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a period of time that was, uh, was a, a true test. So the, the title of the piece, Magnetar, uh, was about this recurring, I'm not even sure what to call it. It's sort of a dream, a daydream. Uh, I liken it in the piece to, um, uh, Jung's concept of active imagination. So it was a daydream that I was kind of piloting, if you will. Mm. And in this daydream, you know, I was in a lot of pain at the time. I couldn't really sleep. So it was a slightly, you know, altered state of consciousness. And I kept finding myself returning to this image of, uh, of a magnetar pulsar, which is a type of, uh, star essentially. Yeah, and it was something about this image that um, was soothing in a way that that let me get through that experience, and and so it stayed with me. You know that whenever I go through hard times, you know I think about this this image that I had over and over again that I describe in the piece, and I think you know I can get through this, right? Like the magnetar is kind of always there, right. um, you know, when times are tough. So yeah, that's what the the piece is about. I really enjoyed it, man. I mean, coming from someone who. Uh had a sick parent their whole life. I mean, my, my mother is a, a double transplant recipient. So, I mean, the whole oh, wow. autoimmune thing is I, I'm too familiar with it, to be honest. It's the same with yeah. the healthcare system and the business side of all of it. So, um, I, I think it's amazing that how proactive you were in determining things yourself with the background you had. That's incredible. I mean, you know, just to, to be able to have that option is, Awesome. So, um, yeah, this, this is a really powerful piece. And like I said, it, it's not so much about, you know, the UFO stuff that a lot of us probably want from you, but it gave us right. a sense <laughs> of the human side of all this and how you got into it and how you, you know, you kind of learned from it. And, you know, I've learned the same from family members and people who have been sick in my life is, you know, it kind of puts you in your shoes. It makes you say, you know, if I'm going to do something with my life, do it now. You know, yes. So. Yeah, exactly. And that, I mean, and, and that, that is where that's the only way that it connects to UFOs really is that it did give me a sense of, you know what, you know, there's urgency, right, to do the things that you want to do in life and to, to answer the questions that you want to answer. So, yeah. um, you know, you make it through one tough thing, you can make it through another. So, you know, why, why not go out there and, and do what you want to do? Exactly. No, I respect that, man. And if there's anything UFOs have taught us, it's uh, it puts us in the moment, especially for those people who've experienced it or seen something or experienced something like talk about in immediacy, like, you, you, you know, you're not thinking of putting your camera up and taking a photo or video or, you know, Instagram living that thing. Like, it's there for you in that moment. And um, I think, yeah, if, if UFOs have taught us anything, it's uh, be in the moment. And uh, we're going to kind of do that moving forward. I really want to dive into some of the most current things in the UFO yeah, world. Um, you know, I mean, only weeks ago, not even, I think, uh, we learned that uh, President Trump may be videoing the bill that a lot of us have been looking forward to, man, this, uh, you know, this request by the Senate select committee. And we're also learning that possibly this, this UAP task force we've heard about from the Pentagon, um, that we might not be getting anything 
from this if it all remains classified. So I'd love to get your stance on all of this because you you have done some really deep dives into a lot of this stuff. And um, I'm going to be honest, as a UFO researcher, once you start getting into their nitty gritty policy of all this stuff, I just my eyes glaze over. So, yeah. so I'd yeah. love to know where do you stand on all of this, man? The pessimist in me thinks we're not going to get anything from this bill or this task force. But what do you think? Is is this something the disclosure movement or the you know the true believers something they really uh, should look forward to or should they temper their expectations with all of this? Uh, well, you should always temper your expectations, I right. would say, and and it's it's understandable because there's an enormous amount of complexity. So so what we're talking about here is the National Defense Authorization Act. So the first thing to know about this thing is that it has about 59 years of precedent of being passed on time. So it's been passed since the Kennedy administration on time. And it essentially governs the the funding of the military and a bunch of policy areas. So I know there's been a lot of reporting lately that that Trump may veto the bill or he may do what's called a pocket veto, meaning that he just simply won't sign the bill in time. And so therefore uh, kind of take it, um, uh, prevent it from being enacted in that way. The most important thing people need to understand is that Trump vetoing the bill does not stop um, what the uh, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence is trying to do. And the reason why is that Congress has the ability to exercise oversight. It's one of its essential functions. And that's really what this is. So there's nothing in that bill, the, the NDAA, um, that gives uh, Congress the power to do this. All, all that's really in there is a report from uh, this intelligence committee asking for this information um, from the Department of Defense and, and from a few others. So that's just a normal kind of request for oversight that happened to come along with the legislative process. But a veto cannot stop that. So if you're worried about the veto or, or the, a pocket veto of the NDAA, I don't think you need to be particularly concerned about that. It may have some potential to slow things down. It certainly has the potential to distract um, the senators and, and people in the Department of Defense because frankly, they you know they will have uh, bigger fish to fry, so to speak, with this. Um, but it's not it's not going to obstruct that particular report from coming out. The second thing, in terms of what to expect from the report when it is produced. So remarkably, in the uh, in the intelligence committee's language, they are very clear in that they ask for a public, a pr- pr- primarily public report. So uh, the question is, well, what is that exactly going to involve? How how fulsome is that report going to be? And that's where actually what we all do next matters a great deal. So if the media and journalists and uh, researchers and bloggers, if we all do our job right and we cover this responsibly uh, in a compelling way that more and more people get involved, that's going to make it easier for senators to take a stand on this uh, and to to kind of push the issue. And it's really going to come down to how much the Senate pushes the, uh, the issue in terms of how much we're actually going to get. Uh, it's certainly possible that we could get something like a paragraph that says, you know, there's really nothing of national defense significance here uh, and that's it. Um, but, you know, the question will be, how will the Senate then receive that? Because that will be, in essence, um, you know, defying what they asked for. So um, it's very much a live question, a contingent question. But I don't think anyone either needs to be panicking or overly concerned about what's going to happen with the process. But I also don't think that people should be, you know, preparing the confetti and uh, vuvuzelas either in terms of (laughs) (laughs) expecting that, uh, you know, something completely earth shattering is going to happen either. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm kind of with you on that. Just roll with it is kind of, you know, my my stance on all of this. But no, I mean, there's and you're right. I think that pressure that people like uh, to the Stars Academy or even citizen journalists have been putting on the Pentagon or the Navy uh, recently has really, you know, showed that it's possible to get stuff. I mean, when we first learned of this secret Pentagon program back in 2017, they were completely blindsided by the New York Times, you know, putting this out there and had to kind of walk back their statements on it all. So I, I think you're right, man. I think a lot of this is putting them in the corner and being like, just just like give us something like even if it is just that paragraph that that will leave ufo people enough to like dissect for the next 10 years <laughs> we've done it before we'll do it again so yeah man I, I i'm glad you could clarify a lot of that for us because i was pretty uh bummed when i heard that oh yeah this might not pass but hey you know 
It is what it is. And I, I guess kind of piggybacking off of that, I'd love to get your opinion on this. You know, we, we might be seeing a new administration coming in. I, I shouldn't mm-hmm. say might. We are going to see a new administration come in in January. Do you think, you know, is this a bipartisan issue at all, Adam? Or do you think this will change anything when it has to do with, uh, with UFOs moving forward. I mean, do you think Biden will be any more of an advocate to get this stuff out to the public um, as Trump didn't really seem to be in his four years in office? Uh, yeah. Does that play into this at all? I guess is my question. I think that this is a bipartisan issue because it is first and foremost a national security issue, at least in the way that it's been framed in the Senate. I think properly, you know, in, in, in the United States, we do have a tradition of, of national defense being bipartisan. And certainly all the figures involved are either bipartisan or or, or apolitical. As far as whether you know we should expect a better environment from a Biden administration, I think that's very difficult to say. I, I think if nothing else, I would expect that the, the general policy environment is going to be much calmer um, and much less interrupted by things like high profile firings. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that we've all been kind of living with in the last couple of years uh, of just a lot of chaos. So I think, you know, um, certainly I would say this, that, that the UAP issue, while it's important, is not front of mind for really anyone in government. Right. And so whenever there's a chaotic period, it's it's that much easier to to neglect it or to not take care of it. So if we have a little bit more of a steady hand, then hopefully that should enhance uh, the ability of, of government to take it seriously. But I'm not aware of anything that would make me think that, you know, Biden is uh, secretly a UFO nut or something like that, where we <laughs> should, you know, think that where there's going to be some special treatment. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of us uh, are dreaming of that sort of six degrees of separation with uh, John <laughs> Podesta, who was an X-Files freak at the time, you know, hoping maybe he still has some connection to the, uh, the Biden administration in some shape or form. But uh, we well, can only dream. One thing I guess I can add to that is that um, Nevada was an important state in the last cycle. And um, I think Harry Reid was was singled out for I mean, Harry Reid, so the former majority leader from from that state, you know, certainly when you have a close election like that and you have a state come through for you, uh, Democratic leaders from that state tend to have a little bit extra pull. So, you know, maybe there's Podesta, but I would also consider Harry Reid. He's been an advocate for looking at this seriously. So, I mean, he's the only reason we know of ATIP now um, in in some ways. But uh, speaking of ATIP, let's uh, let's move to Mr. Elizondo, if you don't Mm -hmm. mind, Adam. I know you've spoken to him personally personally on several occasions. And this kind of got somewhat glossed over, I think, in the UFO discourse that we see on Twitter, which again, I understand is a very niche thing. A lot of people even listening to this probably don't partake in it. But um, this obscure science fiction novel that former head of the uh, secret Pentagon program, Luis Elizondo, brought up. Yeah, he recommended this to people to look into. And of course, I immediately ordered the book after he said that. Um, <laughs> so I would love to get your opinion. Like, what is this really obscure novel that he told everyone to look into? And why do you think it's important in terms of connecting it to what we might be dealing with now with the UAP issue, I guess? So the the backstory on that is um, Doug Johnson of the SCU was, is a fan of this of this novella. And had shared it with um, with with Elizondo, and and uh, Elizondo appreciated it so much that that he uh, recommended it. I think initially in a Reddit thread or something like that. And so yeah, I wrote a piece that kind of uh, analyzed it. And and the interesting thing is, it's a very complicated story. So um, there's multiple parties in the story. There's humanity. There's a uh, sort of alien spaceship that lands. There's also a set of kind of other beings that have um, existed on the Earth but are neither alien nor human. Um, And this story is about kind of all three of them coming together. And really the key thing – the plot is a little too complicated probably for us to summarize here. But the key thing is that uh, in the end, humans are really like tertiary in this story. Um, Oh, I should add, too, that artificial intelligence is actually sort of a fourth player. So an AI created by humans ends up negotiating uh, with these things in the course of the story. Um, So why is it relevant? Right. So why is it interesting? I think it's it's interesting because it it um, it paints a picture where human agency is less important. One, two, it encourages encourages us to think a little bit more broadly uh, about what some of these uh, kind of phenomenon might be. Um, and then thirdly, there are specific things in the story that do kind of resonate with little bits and pieces that we have from from cases and, and historical records. 
So there's two things in particular. One is uh, time dilation effects, which have been you know widely reported by uh, by people. And then secondly, something that we might call um, object polymorphism. So meaning that you have something that does not have one solid form, but rather can actually change its shape or structure, uh, sometimes quite dramatically. So those two things of time effects and polymorphism um, actually are fairly prominent in the case literature. So I think that you know, you'd have to ask um, Lou, you know, what, what what of all of these potential things, you know, human agency and then the particular description compels him the most. I'd love to hear his answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that in, in short, there's you, you kind of have your pick of interesting ideas in that story. Right, right. And, you know, you could even connect it to some of the the aspects that ATIP looked into of these these supposed craft of these five observables, as they've called them. Um, but yeah, let's Chains of the Sea is the name of the novella for anyone interested. I'm not finding the author. Do you happen to know that off the top of your head, Adam? Uh, I do, but I'm going to butcher the, the pronunciation of his <laughs> name, which is a shame because he's a fantastic writer. He, he was mostly known as an editor in his life. But this this piece it was really um, it's fascinating just as science fiction alone. I mean, the way that he wrote Wrote about artificial intelligence was well, uh, way ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. So I recommend people check it out. Yeah, yeah. As most science fiction authors are, God, they are so ahead of their time. It's incredible. You you really do have to wonder, you know, <laughs> if there is some sort of techno divine inspiration going on there. But uh, I guess we'll uh, we'll leave that up to the reader. But uh, moving sort of away from that, another piece that really caught my attention is this one you wrote. Um, kind of starting with the idea of these drone swarms that we were seeing mm-hmm. the past couple years. Uh, this, this was called blurred vision. UAP are not all one thing. God, if I could not hammer that into people's heads more than I already have that we're not dealing with one issue here. Um, you did a great dro- job in this, this blog. So I was wondering, would you mind kind of running us through what you intended to get across to the reader in this one? Sure. So th- the idea is that, uh, you know, when we talk about UAP or UFOs, everyone's mind jumps to the exciting thing of thinking that it's an alien spaceship or, you know, whatever exotic thing that it might be. But, you know, in reality, most of the time when people see a UFO, it's actually, you know, a satellite deorbiting or a piece of uh, rocket or uh, a weather phenomenon or uh, Venus, you know, all of those kinds of, you know, boring things, right? That's That's just factually the majority of what all sightings are. Um, and then also within there, there may be aircraft, there may be experimental aircraft, um, either ours or, or potentially uh, of another country's, depending on where you live in the world. So, you know, just in terms of analyzing what these sightings are, you know, most of them are these kinds of other things. And then there's a small set that are left over that are the really intriguing ones that we don't have an easy answer for. So I was walking through how the stigma that we have developed about that small uh, subset of really strange cases uh, kind of casts a shadow on these other things, and that's actually poses a defense problem in of itself. So in that piece in particular, I talk about um, issues pertaining to drones. So um, a good friend of mine, again, um, Doug Johnson of SCU, has done uh, fantastic FOIA work on um, drone sightings over sensitive nuclear facilities. And there's been a large number, I think on the order of about 50, um, in recent years that have not been uh, identified. So the point that I make in the piece is that, you know, this is a bad time to to have a UFO stigma when we find our skies increasingly full of drones, because if that prevents someone from reporting it or authorities from discussing it, then we may be overlooking something that's got nothing to do, you know, with with UFOs and that exciting sense, but but everything to do with a foreign intelligence service or even criminal a- efforts, um, you know, trying to do things that they shouldn't in secure facilities. So I and the the overall you know the overarching thing was that that um, the blurred vision aspect comes from a sense of speed and that this technology isn't going away if anything it's accelerating so we need to be able to develop a, a kind of collective maturity and a nuance and start looking at this without all the giggling and you know the usual things that people do uh, when they're uncomfortable talking about you know strange things in the sky it really put things into perspective when you said like these things are happening all over the world it's not just here in the United States and we have to really look at that of, you know, these could be potential threats as ATIP has shown us as, uh, you know, the Navy is talking about. I mean, I'm speaking to a gentleman right now, a former Navy serviceman who had five UFO sightings at a military installation, but never reported it. And, you know, of course, 
the the citizen uh reporter in me is like are you kidding me like why wouldn't you report that but you know i wasn't in his shoes and i don't i didn't feel the immense pressure or stigma behind reporting this within the military at the time so i completely understand how that stigma could be a potential threat if they're not reporting these things then right. what if it is a national yeah, security so, issue. Right. If that's if that thing that he saw was really just a Chinese drone or, you know, some other piece of technology, then you've got a security problem because exactly. if someone feels intimidated or like it'll harm their career, they're not gonna they're not gonna mention that thing. And of course we should expect that there's only going to be more of, of this technology. I mean, it's already here with us now. It's, it's not really a theoretical concern. We've also had, you know, non-state actors actually modify, you know, commercial drone technology and in increasingly potentially even accessing military drone technology um, to do some of these things. So, you know, again, we, we've kind of got to we've got to, I think, collectively grow up a little bit and, and be able to tackle it head on. Absolutely. And I think, again, that that stigma is shedding a little bit each day. And, you know, hopefully we'll find a convergence someday with this topic. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Kind of moving to this this beast of a thing you're working on, Adam. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, so in another piece titled Who Else Knows, um, you discuss something called Thread 3. Very interesting part of UFO lore that a lot of people aren't too familiar with. And I know this is kind of an overarching theme of a bigger thing you're working on. But um, could you tell us a little about uh, this piece, why you decided to write about it? And yeah, maybe a little about um, what may be to come concerning UAP investigations in other countries, something we don't really talk about that often here in the West. Sure. So a little while ago, I wrote this piece titled Who Else Knows? And the line comes from um, Lou Elizondo's resignation letter. So when Lou resigned, um, he uh, left a letter to the then Secretary of Defense, uh, Mattis, uh, essentially outlining why he resigned. And in there, he poses some hard questions, he, he calls them. And the first one was, who else knows? followed by some other things you would expect of, you know, what are the capabilities of these things and so on. But that line really stuck with me of, well, what did, what did he mean exactly when he said, who else knows? Who's the who in that, in that statement? Uh, and initially I thought, well, maybe, maybe that has to do with foreign uh, powers. And um, I found that there was actually a little bit of evidence of that. So the New York Times in covering this issue, they put together kind of this uh, piece that was looking at the thinking, uh, the thinking of ATIP. And, and as part of that, they had a slide from Dr. Putoff, who was involved in consulting for the program, and it laid out the threat model. And the threat model was very simple, twofold. One, there's a basic threat from having something in the sky you can't identify, especially when it shows technological characteristics you can't explain. That's just inherently a, a problem if you can't identify it. But then two, what interests me even more 
was a threat that some other country, some other foreign intelligence service could learn something by observing that thing that would give that country a, a technological advantage. So in other words, it wouldn't be necessarily that the, the thing you're seeing in the sky is you know, Russian or Chinese or whatever, but rather that simply they could learn something from it that would advance their military interests. And so I, I, I found that to be a really compelling question of how this problem is treated as an intelligence matter. Uh, and so that got me on the trail of, okay, well, if this is the threat model, what's the evidence for it? Can I actually find any documents or testimony that would lead me to think that, yeah, uh, people in Russia or the former Soviet Union actually were taking this issue seriously? Well, it, it turns out that Dr. Putoff himself answered this question in part. The, the very next slide in that presentation was about a sec set of documents called Thread 3. So Thread 3 is a cache of documents that was retrieved from the uh, Soviet Union uh, by George Knapp uh, and his colleague um, Gresh uh, around 1994. And essentially, these documents are purportedly uh, uh, to be describing exactly what that Soviet program was and the size of it and, and everything else. The problem is that since they've obtained these documents, they never released them. We, no one in the public has seen anything other than the cover page of uh, what's supposedly in these documents. They published a little bit of a description of some of the highlights of what's in it, but it's really pretty basic and bare. Uh, and there's another article where they kind of talk about the experience of going to the then Soviet Union and getting these documents. And since Dr. Putoff points to them as being very important, I was just curious of, hey, what's in these things? You know, what can I learn from them? So that set me on the, the path that I'm, I'm on now, uh, where I'm, I'm working on a piece that's tentatively titled Answering uh, Who Else Knows, where I give uh, an extensive answer to all of that. Um, and so hopefully that should be out. Probably by the time listeners are are hearing this, it may may already be available on my blog. But um, it, it, in, in short, it ended up kicking off a whole kind of adventure uh, looking into the national files of multiple countries outside of the United States and Russia, but also to include uh, the United Kingdom, uh, Spain, uh, and France, um, and even a few others. Yeah, I mean, depending on when that article comes out, Adam, I got an advanced kind of peek at it. And man, if you don't turn some heads with this one, man, I don't know what will, because you <laughs> you uncovered some stuff and got some quotes that uh, really opened my eyes to uh, how big this issue really is, how far it stretches, and just how many people are looking into it uh, much, much more than the United States. So kudos to you on that one. I can't wait to see what comes from that. But um, here's kind of, you know, moving away from your specific blog posts, uh, these overarching questions that seem to be all the rage right now, at least in the UFO world, which again, you know, seems big to us who are into this topic, but is such a small fraction of the the public at large. But let's talk about this. Um, It's not so much UAPs in space, but what could possibly be in the depths of our oceans? This seems to be a big thing right now. People talking about USOs when, uh, yeah, we haven't really been talking about those for a long time. So what do you think? Is is there something to this? Um, do you get the feeling that we're moving more towards what could be underwater than in our skies? Or is this sort of one of those ebb and flow things where we'll talk about it for a little bit and then it'll fade into obscurity again? No, in short, yes. I think that the USO and the the ocean and kind of naval context is actually um, crucial. It's it's incredibly important. I, I do think that that a, a fair amount of research attention is going to go in that direction. So, as a preview of that piece that's coming out, one thing that I found um, in the last couple of you know weeks and really months of of working on this is that in the Soviet context, one of the more um, serious and sustained efforts. Um, was through a scientist named, um, I'm probably going to butcher the name, but I'll try anyway, uh, Ajaja is his last name. And he was um, a scientist and submariner who ended up getting involved in studying these, U actually USO incidents, uh, particularly aboard submarines, uh, and did a, an enormous amount of work on this topic. And so something that I just recently found is that, um, you know, he's continued to write uh, about the subject over the years and, and has a, a fairly lengthy book in, in Russian particularly about this kind of naval context. So from what I can see, as I look outside of the U.S. context and just the Anglophone world and take kind of a wider perspective, there is a recurring theme of the importance of, of the ocean and of the, the USO um, uh, context, to be sure. Interesting. I, I'm really looking forward to where that all heads. Um, hopefully we can get that book translated, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
working on it. <laughs> working on it as of today. <laughs> good, good. I, I knew we could count on you to do that, man. Uh, well, okay. So the ocean is one thing. These triangles are another thing. I personally witnessed one of these things when I was a kid, which was kind of what got me into all this. And a lot of other people have reported these uh, these triangular UFOs throughout throughout the decades. So I was I'd love to just get your take on these things, man. They seem to be in their own world when it comes to UFOs. You know, we got the saucers and the tic tacs, the cigars, whatever, but then we've got these triangles and uh they seem pretty prominent. So do you have any personal observations about triangular UFOs and what role they might play in all of this uh big phenomenal issue, I guess? Yeah, so I don't have any um, special knowledge about that. I've been, you know, David Marler is a researcher who's really focused on on triangle UFOs in particular. And one of the things I know that he does is he he, he takes some pains because a, a lot of us that look at the defense world broadly, there are a lot of um, advanced um, aircraft in the inventory that have a triangular shape. So the the F one seventeen is probably the most prominent example of that. So a lot of people in the defense world, when they hear triangular UFO, they often think, well you know, getting back to the blurred vision thing that, well, maybe that someone's seeing an experimental aircraft or something, and that's not necessarily something that's truly exotic. And I think, um, uh, David Marler has done some work on this to show that some of these, um, sighting reports are really so strange that they're not really properly explained, uh, by that context. But aside from that very general framing, I just have not personally had reason to really dig into those reports, um, at any great length, um, as of yet. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like you mentioned, Marler is probably the preeminent researcher when it comes to these things. And one of the most fascinating things about his research, too, is how many of these triangular cases predate, you know, stealth technology, which is right. often attributed to these. I mean, I, I, for my own personal UFO sighting, I've always been under the impression that what I saw was man-made. Um, mm-hmm. It just, I, I couldn't explain it. And Neither could my father, who also saw it. So, I mean, what it was, I'll probably never know. But uh, I do find it interesting that we can find instances of these pre-stealth technologies. So you do have to wonder. Right. But um, the, the next thing I kind of want to cover with you is skeptics. And mm-hmm. one of the number one enemies in the UFO research community is Mick West. Um, and frankly, I think... Like most people should, skepticism is essential in this topic. I'm very thankful for people like Mick West. I know I'm going to get some hate for saying that, but um, I'd love to get your opinion, man, on probably one of the most hated skeptics no, in we gotta, this thing. We've um, got to speak the truth, right? Mick, we Mick do. West is, is um, I think, helpful in a lot of respects. What Mick West does is he, he really carefully looks at cases and tries to um, – to, to find new questions to ask about them. And yes, right. I mean, he, he presses those questions really hard, but that's actually really valuable. I, I'm, I personally have learned a great deal by talking with, with Mick West. I, I often tell people that, um, Tim McMillan was the first person I, I talked to, um, in, in this field, but Mick West was the second. Um, and I was incredibly, um, appreciative of, of the conversation that we've had now. And, and at times I don't necessarily agree with Mick West on, on everything. And he hasn't persuaded me yet, but I, I think that he's actually a productive uh, person to engage with, with the one exception being that there's a number of military witnesses for cases and they, they often end up in a, in a difficult situation where, um, because we don't have documents available from the Department of Defense, you know, we, we just kind of have their testimony. And so they often feel like they're in a position of trying to explain this, this thing that happened to them that was probably one of the weirdest and maybe most stressful things that's ever happened to them. You know, and they're answering questions from someone who's, you know, very pointedly trying to find problems in the narrative and so on. So for them, you know, that kind of engagement, I think, can get frustrating. And I completely understand that. And I would say that, you know what, you guys have done, you guys have gone above and beyond anyway in giving us your testimony. It's really up to the journalists and researchers to get the documents now. But, you know, but aside from from that whole dynamic, I think that the the hate for for Mick West is is not deserved and is counterproductive, actually. I, I could not agree with you more. While I don't agree with him on a lot of things, 
myself, I think, uh, like we said, it's essential to this topic. And what I would have given for Tim McMillan and Mick West to be the first two people that got me into this topic, because let me tell you, dude, when I first got involved, I was 13 when I got into all this stuff. And that mm. was back during the like early AOL days of conspiracy forums. And my God, if my brain was not getting, you know, destroyed <laughs> from thereafter, I, I don't right. know what else would do it. But, um, no, you bring up so many good points. And I, what I always hope for is that moment when, witness testimony and the documentation can come together you know that we can have the full picture because you look at something like the tic tac video we have the testimony of commander fravor but he was not the one who took the video so all we have is his word on what he saw and the other witnesses who claim to have seen things from from the ship and in the air uh that's one thing but again, it's just witness testimony. And a lot of people don't put a lot of stock into that, which I completely understand. I, for one, do. But then when you can have the documentation to back it up, I mean, that's when you've got a good case to right. argue. So that's exactly what you need to build a real, you know, real case that's going to that's going to hold up. And I think, you know, the main point that, that Mick makes that I agree with is that we've got to have data to interrogate. So I think that's why he focuses um, so much on just on the videos. Now, for me personally, I'm interested in more than than just the videos. I'm interested in the policy context, you know, to include, well, okay, if we have all gotten kind of um, we've misinterpreted this data, then what are the consequences of that? And I think Mick is a little bit more concerned just with looking at the record as such. But, you know, that's the key thing at the end of the day. Is there data to back this stuff up? You know, that that's what determines if a case is. Uh, productive uh, to examine or just another story. And, you know, again, going back to stressing policy, I mean, these hypotheticals we think about if there was some grand disclosure someday, you know, that UFOs were piloted by a extraterrestrial intelligence and let's say presumably or supposedly they were abducting people throughout the decades, you know, like what implication comes with that? Like, do we... Do we try these aliens in a Supreme Court for kidnapping human beings? Or like what ethical questions come from stuff like that? So yeah, man, you do have to really, again, this, that's why I love this topic. You could really take it any way you want to. And I think it's really interesting the way you're looking at this is policy being made from the UAP issue and, uh, not just being made, but even just like entertaining the possibility of being made is huge. So no, I think that's great. You mentioned previously on another show that uh, you were really digging into uh, international UAP incidents. Are there any that you'd uh, that you really find compelling that you're looking at right now that you'd be willing to share with us? There's a whole bunch. Um, so one that I'm looking at are a series of incidents from the Canary Islands um, in the late 1970s. Um, so Las Canarias, uh, um, in the Atlantic ocean. So th th there's an interesting case there, um, that I, I don't think has had all, you know, enough appreciation. It's another one of those where it's too, too complicated in the time that we have now to kind of go through the, the blows of it. And it will be included a little bit in, in the piece that I have coming out. Um, but that's one interesting one because there's photographs of it. There was, um, a mass sighting. So many, many people saw it. It was relatively well documented by the Spanish, uh, ministry of defense, Another one that I've been looking at more recently in the, um, the Russian context is uh, an incident in um, Voronezh in, um, in late 89, I think. Um, so that's another one that was um, a, a mass sighting. There's some issues there in that the Western media didn't, didn't – um, there was some problems with translation and also just an incomplete kind of report of what happened. Um, but that's another fascinating case that I'm taking a look at. And there's a few other ones where, you know, I'm, I'm still I'm needing to do research to really to dig in them, dig into them and see if there's any substance. Um, but another one comes from late 50s in Poland um, of, a, of an object crashing into a bay there. So, you know, these cases tend to intrigue me just because we're less familiar with them. And in my mind, you know, if we're talking about uh, a planetary issue, a global issue, well, then we've got to construct a planetary or global history as well. It's, it's really not good enough to just, you know, look at English speaking countries or, or look at the United States. We've really got to take the broadest possible view we can, um, and really go and, and, and find those stories. And again, you know, look for the testimony, but importantly, look for the documents and the data. 
Exactly. You know, there's such a cultural aspect to all this as well, and how certain countries may deal with it in their own, uh, you know, mainstream media outlets, too. So um, I think you're right. The documents and the data is, it always leads us in the direction we should be going when all else fails. So I think that's great, man. Um, I, I look forward to hearing more about those cases you're looking at. Tehran is probably the big one for me. Um, the uh, 76 sure. one um, in terms of documentation and and how another country deals with these things. So, yeah, it's uh, very fascinating to hear cases internationally because we do. We get so bogged down in the Roswell and, and you know, all the things happening here in the United States. So, yeah, um, I would love to ask some listener questions if you're up for it, man. Oh, absolutely. Cool. Um, I definitely had some really excited people to, to see that you were on. Um, so these are really going to run the gamut. Uh, let's start with James from Engaging the Phenomenon on Twitter. He asks, are there any researchers in this topic that you really appreciate most? There's a, there's a whole bunch. Um, I'll name three. So uh, Tim McMillan, I think, is probably a controversial first pick. I think Tim has done fantastic work. He's one of the better investigators I think I've, I've met. Um, I think someone who's really criminally overlooked is uh, Mark Sicotti. Um, he has done really fantastic work um, on, on his blog and um, is just has a, a, an attention to detail and a, a mental catalog that is extremely impressive. Um, and then another would be D- um, Doug Johnson again of, of SCU. So he's someone who has done fantastic FOIA work, but then also really understands the intricacies of the legislative process and of government. So usually the first person I talk to when I'm trying to make sense of something that's happening on the Hill uh, or, or happening in government will, will be Doug. So um, and there's so many more, you know, that, that I could list. But those are the th- the top three that come to mind as you ask me the question. Gotcha. Hey, those are some good names, man. And anyone connected to the SCU, uh, for our listeners, the Scientific Coalition of UAP Studies, um, definitely look into the work. Because again, you know, while we can wait for these, you know, the Senate Intelligence Committee or the UAP Task Force, we have amazing citizen scientists doing incredible work. I mean, the, the Aguadilla Puerto Rico case is coming to mind with the SCU, who, um, they covered this case extensively that we have supposedly video of from the Homeland Security, um, a very underrated case in my opinion. So, um, anyone listening, go check out the work being done there. But, um, all right, moving to, to abductions, Adam. Again, I know this is a very fringe topic within all of this, but the undead gaucho on Twitter asks, what are your thoughts on the abduction phenomenon? Do you buy into any of this? Uh, I haven't evaluated enough to really have um, a strong view on it. Um, to be honest with you, it's not something that I've looked at. So so one thing I've tried to explain um, is that when I really dig into something, so Bob Woodward is like my hero in research and journalism. Mm-hmm. I really will try to exhaustively look at something. So if I haven't done that level of homework on something, I really try not to, to say much about it. And so the abduction phenomenon, definitely one of those things that I just don't, I don't have, I haven't earned an opinion. So I'm not going <laughs> to give you one. Completely fair, man. Hey, none of us are experts in any of this anyway, so I can't pretend to know anything about abductions either, even though I've heard thousands of cases at this point. I'm no closer to an answer or opinion on it. So um, let's see. Andy from Twitter asks, uh, he'd love to hear um, you discuss some of the unknowns that may be players in the background when it comes to the tech of UFOs. Um, he's thinking along the lines of what Tim McMillan has brought up, this discussion about the Department of Energy, something a lot of people don't really talk about and seem to be present at some of these UAP cases that have been investigated. So what do you think, man? Department of Energy, should we be looking more at these guys when it comes to all this other than like the Air Force or the NSA or yeah, anything overlooked in your opinion, I guess? Sure. I mean, that's one of those where there's a lot of lore and there's um, even things that kind of verge in conspiracy theory. So I'd be careful with it. But I do think that it's predicated in the sense that the Department of Energy is a very unique entity. It has a unique uh, culture uh, among many of the agencies, but also by law, there there's some unusual things about how it's uh, it's constructed. So you know, there there are people who are familiar with, say, special access programs and the like, will say things like, you know, if you wanted to to hide something or have something deeply classified, you know, the, that's technological in nature. The Department of Energy would be you know a good place to do that. 
So I think it's by by that kind of logical inference that that some people look at the, the DOE. So I, I personally have not seen anything of as yet that makes me think, wow, this is really, you know, there's a thread here that we've got to pull on. But I understand why why people uh, talk about it and want to look at it. Yeah, it is interesting. And maybe we'll get some updates on that in the future from people like Tim McMillan. Well, only time can tell. But um, Wilson Siegel on Twitter asks, this This is an interesting one. This gets a little deep into ATIP. So it really depends on how far you want to go with this one, Adam. But um, he's curious to know your views on ATIP as a program. To him, it seems like something of an anomaly, you know, this unclassified, non- special access program, which apparently was deeply hidden from most people. They didn't even know about it. Um, but yeah, what do you think is the nature of ATIP? Is this just a small tentacle of something bigger? Actually, it's funny. You're doing all this work looking at uh, national programs all over the world. ATIP actually seems to me to be kind of in keeping with how most of these programs are run. So they tend to be relatively small programs, um, oftentimes, uh, countries will organize a lot of kind of unusual or strange topics together. So, um, it's what some people will call the weird desk concept where, you know, you're going to study things like remote viewing and psychic things and UFOs and, and the like all under kind of one, um, one program. And so certainly the, um, the, the predecessor to ATIP, uh, OSAP de- definitely fits that criteria. And then ATIP seems to be, uh, a bit more focused from that to look at more of the the UAP issue individually. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as as understanding as a program, yeah, to me, it does actually seem in the tradition of relatively small, you know, state run programs to to monitor reports to try to make sense of it. They tend not to be all that large. Um, and and they tend to run into problems with either resources or authorities or both. Um, and then that was the case with ATIP. I mean, ultimately, you know, Lou Elizondo resigned uh, to try to kind of bring this uh, issue out into the public um, light. So, um, yeah, that's that's my view of ATIP. I mean, yeah, well, kind of playing off of that, you know, Elizondo resigned. But um, in your opinion, do you think this ATIP program could still be going on? We were kind of told that it's it's gone at this point. But, um, yeah, do you think that this or any other programs dealing with this threat, you know, of aerospace threat identification uh, is still going on besides the UAP task force. Yeah, I mean, we're in um not entirely unique, but kind of unique position where we do know that there, there's a program going on um, in the UAP task force, um, you know, that's currently up and running. And we had the unusual thing of actually getting confirmation of that, you know, directly from the Department of Defense. Um, you know, announcing that this program is running. And to my best understanding, and I don't I don't have any great, you know, insider knowledge here, but my best understanding is it, it really is a continuation of ATIP under a different name, um, maybe with some different people involved, but it's it's doing the same job except with uh, probably some more resources and a little bit more um, uh, attention and structure than I had previously. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That I, I mean, I think all of us could sort of assume it was still going on somehow, some way. So that's exciting to hear. I mean, to be honest, hopefully we'll get something from all of it. But hey, if not, it's in the matter of national security. And I, for one, understand that. So <laughs> moving a bit more, Adam, to some final personal listener questions. Shadows Magazine on Twitter asks, do you ever regret going down this rabbit hole with UAPs and getting kind of entrenched into the UFO community. Has that ever happened to you, man? Because I know it has with me. Yes, regularly. <laughs> I'll be honest. I'll be honest. Yes, of course. Um, everybody I know that uh, works on this, uh, they've talked to me about, you know, gee, I'm going to hang up the hat. I'm done. I've had enough. <laughs> you know, I'm going to move on. And there's different reasons for that. I mean, sometimes it's you know, we're, we're trying to, to, to find documentation and solid answers about something that has been, you know, elusive and stigmatized and so on for, for decades. And then on top of it, you know, there's a community of, I think, really, I understand there's a passion about this topic. I mean, I share that passion in a lot of respects, but that passion can go a little funny sometimes and, and it can lead people to developing certainties they can't necessarily fully support. And so it can be tough when you research this stuff and you kind of get people who have a really strong, you know, pre-established point of view or they get mad at you because um, maybe the research you're doing doesn't support that or, or whatever the case may be. So all of those things do contribute to this being a, a somewhat difficult thing to work on. But at the end of the day, it's like you were saying before, it's a fascinating topic. It touches on virtually everything. It's just so interesting that despite all of that, you kind of find yourself 
you know, continuing on nonetheless. <laughs> yep, absolutely, man. I have hung that ad up so many times, but something always draws me back in. And, you know, I'm rewatching the X-Files right now, and I always go back to that poster. I want to believe. And I think that want often clouds people's judgment when it comes to this topic. It always has. It probably always will. But like I said, there's room for everyone at the table. And I think that's what's awesome See, and so inclusive about this to me it, to me if you could some if somehow you know a magic wand got waved and uh, i found out that all of this was just misperception 70 years of misperception it would still be an incredibly fascinating story <laughs> about how governments have reacted to it and how you know how society has responded to it i mean no matter what the answer is here i, I genuinely think it's it's a fascinating story nonetheless that that is the one certainty that i do have in this field I love that. I love that, man. That's a good way to look at it. Then you'll never be let down because at least there's something. And I've yeah. always said, too, like when we finally get those answers, a lot of us probably won't like those answers. But, hey, we got them. Well, but that's, a, you know, it's the third time we're saying it. You got to tell the truth, right? The yeah. truth is really what matters. And, and we want to find answers, not just uh you know, enjoy a mystery, right? So totally. Absolutely. Um, well, our last listener question here, Adam, John on Twitter asks, who is the number one person you'd want to interview or, and number one person you'd want to be interviewed by when it comes to everything I do, not just UAP work, but your work with um, technology and oh. you know, strategic defense. Yeah. Any really big pipe dreams or dream people you'd want to talk to? Oh, wow. I had an easy answer for UFOs, and now I've got a harder one for the world <laughs> at large. So I'll give you the UFO. The UFO one's really easy. Um, it's definitely Jacques Vallée. I mean, it, I happen to be doing some work right now where he's kind of an important player, and I would just be fascinated to have his his insights and to, to talk to him. Mm -hmm. um, and he's doing, you know, he's doing more um, contemporary stuff, too, with materials and so on. That would be really interesting to hear about. Um, in a In a Bigger picture lens, boy, I would love to talk to the uh, probable nominee for Secretary of Defense, Michelle Flournoy. I think she would be a really interesting person to talk to. She's had a f uh, fascinating career. Boy, there's too many. I'll, I'll, I'll stop myself there. Hey, those are good, man. Those are some good people. I Hey, I'm still hoping someday Jacques will give me the time of day, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Um, well... I guess kind of wrapping things up, you know, you started this blog, you're really exploring different avenues when it comes to policy and um, different programs that have looked at UAP for a while. Um, what do you want in all of this, man? I always like to know why people do this. What are they really searching for other than the question of are we alone? I mean, that's right. that's one avenue to all of this. But at the end of the day, what do you want to get through all of this? So at a real granular tactical level, I would love it for the community of people who research this and really put some time and effort into it to kind of row in the same direction a little bit in terms of covering the real kind of government side of this um, and making this something that is going to be something we can address publicly where we don't have too many um, preconceived notions about what the answers are. Um, but rather we go into this just trying to find, to, to follow the facts as we find them and, and, and to get some answers to some of these things. Um, so that's what I would most like to see is that we actually resolve, um, any of these ambiguities that we have that we can resolve. There's so many that we can't, right? So we can't turn back the clock and have, you know, a high definition camera in just the right place to capture a sighting. But there are a lot of things. And the thread three is an example of one of them. Where we can get those documents someday if the right people uh, decide that they that they want to do that. Um, so that that's what I hope for is that we answer the questions we can answer, um, and then we you know we make sense of the world on the other side of that, whatever the answers are. Absolutely, yeah, that's a very um, logical way to look at it, and I do I do think we will. I honestly do, and I think the work you're doing and Tim McMillan, MJ Benias, these these citizen journalists out there doing really good work in a field that has begged for legitimate journalism for years and years. I think we're uh, closer than ever to getting some of those answers. And uh, hey, man, I think you're a big part of that. Um, I commend you on the work you're doing. And my last question for you, is there anything else you can share of what you're working on? We kind of teased something you're doing. But um, yeah, what are you working on? And where can we find everything you're up to? You can find my site it's at strategicdoubt.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter under um, Dr. Adam Kehoe um, or uh, blog.adamkehoe.com is another way to get there. 
Um, yeah, so I'll have this piece out fairly shortly uh, that is looking at kind of the big picture of many of these things. And then what I like to do in a lot of my pieces, you may have noticed, is I'll set up a bunch of questions. And then in the next piece, I'll go and I'll answer them. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm, I'm going to do that again, where there's so many fascinating things that I need to dig into a little bit more on some of these Russian cases or Spanish cases. I think uh, France is a fascinating, fascinating example of there's both some fascinating ca cases, but also the way that they've organized their effort. I think we can learn a lot from. And so I want to do a big piece on that uh, and get a chance to maybe talk to some more folks there. Yeah, lots and lots of things in that direction. I've still got some some more work to do in the American context as well in terms of trying to get a clearer picture of the timeline. There's a whole lot. And you're, you'll, you'll uh, readers will see the list of questions I'll be working on. Keeping that saucer in the air and uh, keeping us on our toes. That's all we can ask for. But um, brother, I got to thank you. This has been very refreshing to get your perspective on all of this. And I can't wait to see what comes next. And I got to thank you for coming on Somewhere in the Skies. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's been a blast. That's it for this week's episode. Again, my special thanks to Dr. Adam Kehoe for taking the time to speak to us today. Just a note that for the entire month of December, a portion of all merchandise sales, book sales, ACAST supporter contributions, ad revenue on both the podcast and YouTube channel will all be donated to a special cause I support every year, and that is the Women's Refugee Commission. WRC's mission is to improve the lives and protect the rights of women, children, and youth displaced by conflict and crisis. Visit the merch store at tpublic.com and you can buy the book in print, ebook, and very, very soon audiobook as well. Just search for Somewhere in the Skies on Amazon and for one time contributions to the show, click the ACAST supporter link in the show notes. To learn more about the Women's Refugee Commission, visit womensrefugeecommission.org. I also want to just take a moment to thank all essential workers for everything you're doing to make the world keep spinning right now. No matter what field of work you're in, please know we commend you for all you've done and will continue to do for our fellow human beings throughout the world. Thank you. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Summer Skies and on Instagram at Summer Skies Pod. And be sure to subscribe to the Ryan Sprague YouTube channel for exclusive video content. If you'd like to share your UFO story in an upcoming Witness Accounts episode, or to reach me personally, use the contact tab on the website, somewhereintheskies.com. Thank you as always to the E1 Podcast Network, and especially to you for listening. I'll see you here next week, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching Somewhere in the Skies. Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.